Well, Sunday mornings, the book of Revelation, ultimate realities, and today, the ultimate future. Now, last time, if you remember, it, it was last year, uh, chapter 19, we witnessed Christ riding to the rescue of his bride, the church. She's surrounded by vicious enemies. It's a flock of sheep facing the beast. And when all appears lost, the ancient doors of heaven, the ancient gates, they swing open and out rides our beloved, our Jesus, at the head of his armies. And as he rides uh, to the rescue of his bride, so his enemies fall under him. And he's wonderful, glorious, unstoppable. He's coming for his bride, coming for us. And as the last enemy falls, so Jesus sweeps his bride off her feet, the two lovers united at last, and together they return to the Father's house for the wedding itself. And what then? Well, the ultimate future. So please come with me to Revelation 21, and particularly verses 9 to 27. Now, chapter 20, um, if you read it, it is, speaks of the thousand years, the millennium, and we'll cover that on a Wednesday evening. Also, chapter 20, we have the defeat of Satan and the last judgment. Now, remember, these are overlapping pictures. This is not chronologically the case. You, these, these are running parallel with chapters 15 to 19. That's why we looked at hell in chapter 16. We looked at the fall of Babylon. These are all running, they're overlapping pictures. So it's not that you have then hell and then the fall of Babylon and then the thousand years and then Satan defeated and then the last judgment. There is some chronology, but they're overlapping all the way through. But now we've come to chapters 21 and 22, and it's the climax of history. It's the ultimate future. So chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So it's God's new world, resurrected universe, where we shall live forever in glorified bodies. And we've spoken at length about that over the last few years when we did the series in Romans, the series in 2 Peter, and when we did that short series in Hebrews 10 last year. So I don't propose to go through that. And then you read verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. We read of a city that is also a bride, a city that is heavenly but also earthly. So at the center of this renewed creation is a great city. It's not Babylon. It's the other city. It's the new Jerusalem. A bride adorned for her husband. So what are we looking at? We're looking at the church. The people of God. Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. A city, a bride, the picture of the glorified church, the glorified people of God the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Now, before we jump in, we live in a city. London, London's the home to nine million people, and it's big, 
and sprawling, noisy, dirty and alive. And there's wealth and poverty side by side and there are green spaces and wastelands, there's beauty and ugliness and there's rubbish and graffiti and crime and immorality and decay, darkness, fear, loneliness. It's a great city, but it's a city in which so many people feel isolated and alone. Joyce Vincent, uh, she died in London, North London, in 2003 at the age of 38. Her body was discovered in 2006. She died in 2003, discovered in 2006, and when they discovered her, the television was still on. She wasn't a drug addict. She wasn't an alcoholic. She was attractive, intelligent, popular, funny, cultured. Uh, she'd held down top jobs. She'd had dinner with Stevie Wonder. She'd met Nelson Mandela. But in London, she lay dead for three years. No one seemed to notice. No one seemed to care. They only broke into her flat because she was in rent arrears. We live in London, our loveless, lonely, anonymous city where people walk on by. Well, here's another city where nobody walks on by, where everyone is known and valued and cared for and cherished. It's a perfect community, a holy community. It's a community of love and joy and peace where everyone is united to Christ and everyone is united to one another, where everyone has more than their heart could desire in a future that has no end. It's the ultimate future. So let's look at this city. Now remember, the, these are pictures. So much of it is symbolic. It's pictures because the reality is actually unimaginable. So let's look at the city. Number one, the glory of God. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. John's taken to a high mountain. There are echoes of Moses going up on a high mountain to receive the plans for the tabernacle. But he's got a perfect vantage point. So, John, what do you see from the high mountain? He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So the city radiates with the glory of God. And John can't quite describe it. He says its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He can't actually say what it is. Well, he can say, well, it, 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 it's like this. Now, jasper is multicolored. But think of a, a clear jewel. That's what it says. A clear jewel. A clear jewel shines, doesn't it? It shines with a reflected light. It sparkles, it scatters light in all directions. Well, here is the church shining, radiating, sparkling with the very glory of God. The holy city. Scripture speaks of the, the beauty of holiness. 
God is holy. God is God. God is infinitely God. He is holy, holy, holy. Every one of his attributes is an infinity of excellence. So when you gather all those attributes together, the word the Bible has for this, he's holy. It's speaking of glory, glory, glory. Well, every attribute of God is reflected perfectly in the church, in the city of God. His people holy as God is holy. The bride, she's mirroring Christ. So this city radiates wisdom, goodness, justice, righteousness, faithfulness, joy, peace, and supremely love. For God is love. This is the city of love, where everyone loves God perfectly, where everyone loves one another perfectly. And there's no darkness in the city. It shines with the glory of God. Number two, the architecture of the city. John, as it were, takes a closer look. Verse 12. It had a great high wall. That's straightforward enough, isn't it? It's telling you it's a place of, of safety. Have you cried this week? Have there been fears this week? Have you had that horrible feeling in the pit of your stomach? Well, none of those things are there. It's a place of safety. Verse 12, I had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. So at each gate, there is an angel standing on guard, standing on duty. So nothing can get into the city that would spoil the city. Because there's an angel standing on guard at each gate. Remember, this is symbolic language. He had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. The 12 tribes. It's shorthand for the people of God. Christian friends, we are the tribes of Israel. We are the true Israel. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you bow to Israel's king, if you bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the true Israel. We're the children of Abraham. We have Abraham's faith. And the 12 tribes, think of the tribes. How different those tribes were. If we had time, we could just see they were very different. And yet they're all one people. And it's the same for us, isn't it? How different we are. And yet we're all one. We're not peas in a pod. We're not a cult. We're all shapes and sizes and backgrounds and giftedness and temperaments and quirkiness. I'm the most normal among the elders, I can tell you that. (laughs) But also on those gates are the names of the 12 tribes. Now our house has a number. But we could put a name on our house, couldn't we? And you might put the name, we might say, it's the Hemmings home. Because that's where we live, it's our home. We could put a name there. And on your door you could put your name. Because that's where you live. So this city has the names of the tribes on the gates because, well, it's the home of God's people. It's where they live. They, they feel it's home because it is home. It's their home. It's their home forever. Verse 13. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So the gates face north, south, east, and west. Why? Because 
God's people, the elect, have been gathered out of north and south and east and west. We're told they're gathered out of every nation and tribe and people and language. Verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So this city is founded upon the apostles. So what does that mean? Well, Christian friend, how were you saved? You were saved through the apostolic gospel, the apostolic word. How did you go on in the Christian life? Through the apostolic gospel, the apostolic word. How is this church being built? It's being built through the apostolic gospel, the apostolic word. We're people of the book. It's what builds the church here on earth. And therefore is also the foundation there. If we're not building on the apostles' word here, then we won't be going there. Now, the glorified church, will we still need our Bibles? What do you think? No, (laughs) because I won't be hearing about Jesus from the apostle John, or Matthew, or Luke, or Mark. I'll be hearing about Jesus from Jesus' own lips. He'll be telling me the great story of his love for his bride and coming from heaven to rescue his people. But all that he says, of course, won't be a departure from the apostles. It's still the foundation. We simply go further in and higher up. The dimensions, number three, the dimensions of the city. Look at verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So we're told that the city is, is 12,000 stadia, that's 14,000 miles, or if you like it in kilometers, it's 2,250 kilometers. It's, it's 2,250 kilometers, 1,400 miles in each direction. And that's not just the length and the breadth, it's also the height. Verse 16, um, its length and width and height are equal. So the city is a cube, and each of the dimensions is, is 1,400 miles. Remember, the language is symbolic. So what does it all mean? Well, we're told there are high walls. Again, that's obvious, isn't it? It's, 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 a, it's a secure city. Nothing is going to shake it. Nothing is going to trouble it. But 1,400 miles long and high and wide, what does it say to you? It's huge. Now, some people, when they talk about the elect, and they say the elect, and the elect, and the elect, each time they say it, the number seems to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So you wonder, does anyone get saved? But actually, earlier in the book of Revelation, Revelation 7, we're told this. 
After, after this I looked and behold a great number that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So chapter 7 says the number that God saves is so great you can't number it. So it's a huge city because it is filled with the redeemed. A number so big you can't measure it. And of course, when you look at the city, it's these dimensions. It's not a sprawling city like London, which has just kind of grown organically in all different directions. And this is a city that's been planned. From eternity past, the great architect has planned the city. He's planned every stone where that stone will fit he's planned every dimension and through the ages he's been building his church and now at last it's finished that's why i don't know if you noticed we have this repetition of 12 keeps coming up so it's 12 tribes 12 apostles 12 gates 12,000 stadia the walls are 144 cubits 144 because it's 12 times 12 Why 12? Because 12 is the number of fullness, the number of completeness. You see what it's saying? The full number of God's people are there. All God's people are there. No one is missing. They are all there. Not one is absent. There's Moses and David and Peter and Paul and John and Augustine, the good Augustine, Augustine of Hippo and McShane and Spurgeon and actually all those lovely believers we've known. They're no longer with us. We might say we've lost them, but they haven't been lost. Because all God's people are there. Not one is lost. What a reunion that will be. And the significance of the cube. Well, You may remember in the temple, the innermost room, that sometimes called the Holy of Holies or the Holiest of All, that innermost room was where God dwelt in the symbolism of the ancient temple. It was the place where heaven and earth met. You were on the earth, but you were also in heaven. It's where the two dimensions met. That innermost room was a cube. That was the picture. Here's the ultimate picture. It's saying that this city is all the holiest of all. It's where heaven and earth are joined. It's God's true home. It's where God dwells. God's home. And you know what people are like when they're home, don't you? When they're home, they take off their working clothes. When they're home, they relax. When they're home, if it's a father, they play with their children. In this home, which is our home, we'll see God as it were, as he, as he truly, really is. We shall know and enjoy God in all his dimensions, in all his fullness, for all eternity. He'll be the father, the work has done, he's home, home with his children, all his children. They are all there, all his children, with their father forever. Number four, the city is beautiful. 
Look at verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the tenth, sorry, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates was made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I mean, really, just got to drink it in, haven't you? Think of it. Gates. And there's some big gates, aren't there? And East Twickenham, there was a big house there. The house is gone. The gates are there. You can walk past the great big gates. But think of gates made of a single, single pearl. And streets. You can go outside in the pavement and stroll up and down. And then you go inside and you take your shoes off because they've been walking on a dirty street. But, but streets that are paved with clear gold. Again, it's all picture, isn't it? And foundations. What do you, what do you put into foundations? Well, you put concrete, don't you? And, and steel and, and rocks and all sorts of things. These foundations, the foundations of the city of the wall, were adorned with every kind of jewel. So if these are the foundations, how beautiful the city must be. The city is beautiful. And those stones, if you look at the colors of them, they're blues and greens and reds and yellows and violets and oranges and pinks and purples. I mean, it's just beautiful. You know, we could spend a whole sermon, couldn't we, just looking at the different stones and their colours and marvelling. It's just, wow. Christian friends, today, as a church, as a local expression of that great city, um, we're ugly, aren't we? Um, that's not being rude. Um, we've got ugly things about us as a church. Because we're all still sinners. Sin remains. There's all sorts of ugly attitudes. Maybe some ugly relationships. Ugly things that we think and say and do and so on. But then, John says in 1 John 3 verse 2, we shall be like him. We shall be unimaginably, unimaginably beautiful. We shall be like him because we shall radiate with the beauty of Jesus. Who is the beauty for? He showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. But what does he say? Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And we're told in verse 2, the city is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who is the beauty for? Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The beauty, the beauty of God's people is supremely for the bridegroom. It's our wedding day. Here comes the bride. The bridegroom looks at his bride and he loves her. She's beautiful to him. This is the day he's longed for, waited for. Oh, he chose his bride in eternity past. He wooed her and then he went to the cross. 
He paid that dowry for her in his own blood. He gave himself for her. He's loved his people as no one has ever loved us. And now here on her wedding day, she's wearing the jewels that he's bestowed on her. And all is beautiful, beautiful to Christ. The marriage of the Lamb. The consummation of all things. And the two lovers in their marriage will share eternity and ever deepening intimacy and love. The greatest marriages in this world are just a faded picture of the true marriage. This is the true marriage and all other marriages are just little reflections of that. Even the best is just a, a poor reflection Because here is a union of unimaginable closeness and happiness. We'll know him as we could never know him in this world. More and more and more about Jesus. And did you notice there were 12 jewels? Again, this is number, isn't it? 12. 12. 12 jewels. And if you know something of your Old Testament, you'll know that the breastplate that the high priest wore had 12 jewels jewels and there's some overlap between these jewels and those jewels because it's saying that jesus the great the great high priest he wears us on his heart we couldn't be couldn't be nearer more nearer to our beloved we're on his heart he loves his bride she's beautiful for him it's the wedding day Number five, no temple. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, in the old Jerusalem, there was a temple. It was a separate building. It was a house. In that house, God was strangely, wonderfully present. Now, of course, God is everywhere present. But it was in the temple that he particularly made himself known. It was in the temple that they knew something of his unveiled presence. So David could say, so I've looked for you, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. He's talking actually here about the tabernacle. Because when he went to the, into the special meeting place, it was there that he saw God's glory and power. In a way that he didn't outside. Or the great Psalm 84, where the the psalmist is on a pilgrimage to the temple. And what's he looking forward to? For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. See what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, oh, to be near to the Lord, to meet with him. A day in his courts is better than a, a thousand lifetimes anywhere else. But you see, even when you got to the temple, that old temple, you could only go so far, no further. So much of that temple was off limits. If you're a woman, you could only go so far. If you're a man, you could go further. But actually, into the holy place, only the priests could go. And then that inner room, that cube-shaped holy of holies, the very presence of God, only one man once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he only he could go, and then he had to come out again. But now, there are no barriers, no obstacles, no difficulties. In fact, it's much more than that, isn't it? I saw no temple in the city. Why? 
No building, no meeting place. Why? Because I saw no temple in the city, for its, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's saying there's no special meeting place because the whole city is the meeting place of God and his people. God fills the city. God fills the church with all his fullness. We all dwell in the immediate, unveiled presence of God. What the psalmist could only dream of, a day in your courts. Here is eternity in his courts, in his presence. But there's more. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So God is the temple. And the city, the church, is the temple. In that sense, they're coextensive. You see what it's saying? There's a perfect interpenetration of God and his people. Every living stone, every believer is an immediate, conscious, intimate contact with the Lord. And of course, every stone is part of a part of the greater building. So we don't just enjoy God individually. We enjoy him together. A perfect interpenetration of God and his people. And so the worship of God, the enjoyment of the Lord God Almighty, as it says, and the Lamb is a shared experience. We share in this experience because we are the bride and we're with the bridegroom. There's a level of intimacy and union with one another and a level of intimacy and union with the Lord that is just beyond our imagination. That's why it can only be represented in pictures. Beyond our comprehension, beyond our imagination. All is God. All is temple. Wherever God's people are, all of God is there. Wherever God is, all his people are there. There's no distance. There's no going to meet with God. We're living in his presence completely, totally, absolutely, always. And all of that means. And then you begin to pick up on words that Paul says. And you begin to think, oh, I begin to understand what he's saying. Ephesians 1, talking of Jesus. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Or Ephesians 3 verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here it is, in its fullness, the consummation, filled with all the fullness. God's not being spread thin. I'll meet with that one over there, that one over there. All of God and all his fullness is meeting with his people. No temple. So number six, no sun, no moon. Verse 23, and the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, but the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nation, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In this world, if you want a picture of the glory of God, says Psalm 19, you look at the sun. Okay, so when you look at the sun, you understand God is light. And of course at night time, when there's the moon, again, you understand that God is light. 
But the glory of God is second hand. It's mediated through things that he's made. We see the glory through the light of the sun, through the light of the moon. They're telling us that God is glorious, but we don't see that glory directly. It's second hand, it's mediated, but now, here, it's unmediated. It's face to face. We shall see him as he is. And we'll talk more about that next time. And of course, just as the light of the sun fills the earth, so in this city, the unmediated glory of God is going to fill everything, every horizon. There's no darkness in this city. It's just filled, filled, filled with the glory, the beauty, the loveliness of Christ. Wherever you look, Number seven. Um, Again, it's picture language. There's no shutting of the gates. Verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there'll be no night there. Ancient cities, what did they do? Nighttime, maybe a big trumpet went off or a big bell was sounded. And you know that the gates were going to close. They closed the gates of the city. Why? Well, again, for the same reason you lock your front door. But here the gates are left open because there's no threat, no fear, no thief, no darkness, no danger, no devil. We dwell in perfect safety. Perfect safety in his perfect presence. Some years ago, I spent an evening... Uh, with a visitor from South Africa, we stopped to buy, I stopped to get petrol, um, I went to pay, and uh, my visitor got very concerned, very anxious. In fact, he stopped me several times, because I was leaving the car unlocked. Now, apart from the fact it was a Nissan Serena, and uh, if you've got any street cred, you don't nick a Nissan Serena. Um, but it betrayed an attitude of mind, didn't it? Because where he lived... In his home, there was the constant threat of violence and robbery. So lock your car, lock your car, lock your car. But in this city, there's no threat. There's no violence. There's no one coming to get me. There are no dangers. The war is over. It's over. It's gone. There's no more devil. No one's coming to get you. No worries at night. No fears. It's over. And so the gates are left open. Number eight, moving on quickly. No sameness. Look at verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So did you really think the future of God's people was a stained glass window? The redeemed of the nations will each bring their unique contribution to the city their unique contribution to enrich the life of the city. So all that's best of every nation, its genius, its culture, its artistry, its science, sport, architecture, music, poetry, colour, vibrance, beauty, fun, the best of every nation will be brought into the city to glorify the king. Now in hell there's a terrible sameness. What makes us interesting and different and beautiful and so on is the image of God. 
But in hell, the image of God is stripped away. So all the creatures look the same. They've all been stripped of the image of God. And all the creatures in hell wail and rage. It's a terrible sameness. But in the New Jerusalem, all that is best of every nation will be there. It's not lost. Think of Amy Park Chapel. 20 or so different nations. More than 20 nations. It's a little glimpse of heaven, isn't it? little glimpse of heaven. It's to God's glory that we as many nations are one church. I know that brings difficulties because different cultures, different ways of looking at the world and so on, that there always makes difficulties. And, and particularly if you maybe are the only representative of your nation and your culture and your language, it makes it particularly difficult, doesn't it? And yet it brings great glory to God. In glory... All the nations, all that's best about the nations. What's best about your nation? You know, when you think about Ethiopia or Bulgaria or South Africa or whatever, you think, that's what's best about my nation? Well, it'll be there. And some of us, we, we might mourn over the things that were part of our nation that have now been lost and think, oh, I look at the, look at the, the things of my childhood and think, oh, there was something about the Sundays were so quiet and there was a lovely reasonableness and you could talk about things freely and there were some lovely things about and I think that, that, that part of my life and that part of my world is gone the world I grew up in is gone but all that's best will be there it's never lost all that's best of our cultures and our nations is never ever lost it'll be there to be enjoyed by everyone they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. There's a lot about diversity, isn't there? But the world can't do diversity. Because when it tries to do diversity, all that happens is we end up with them and us. And there's certainly no diversity of thought. And the world can't do unity. Because all we end up with is a drab uniformity. We're all trying to be squeezed into a mold. But you see, here is the God who is one, unity, and three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, diversity. God is unity and diversity, and that is now perfectly reflected in his people, reflected in the church. So in the church, there is a true unity and a true diversity. And there are no more divisions, no more wars, no more hatred, no more them and us. But the many, with all their differences, united under the one king, with one heartbeat, one delight, one song, which is the glory of God and of the Lamb. Do you see, it's a city, isn't it? It's not lots of little villages. It's a city. It's a single community of nations with a shared life. A perfect unity, a perfect diversity, living together in harmony and love. No sameness. And finally, number nine, no uncleanness. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now think of your happiest days. They never last. That's why we snatch at moments before they get taken away. 
Because this world is cursed, it's defiled, it's unclean. All of us are filled with things which are detestable, false. And if it's not my sin that grieves me, it'll be the sin of somebody else that grieves me. But on that day, there will be nothing to spoil. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation. Nothing to spoil church family life. No besetting sins chasing me like a pack of hounds through this life. No devil to assault me, no world to seduce me or bully me or tempt me. Nothing between believer and believer. Nothing between God and me. And unlike Eden, no possibility of a fall. A church of sinners. A city of sinners. But they're sinners no more. Saved from the punishment of their sins at the cross. Saved from the power of those sins. But here, now, ultimately, saved from the very presence of their sins. Because his name is Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. See, the whole city is a It's about the wonderful grace, the wonderful grace of God. How can you make such a beautiful city, a beautiful bride, marry her to Jesus Christ, a bride that was chosen? Sinners, wicked sinners, filthy sinners, and yet here, now, at last, beautiful, without sin, no defilement, no shame, nothing detestable, nothing false. And we won't be saying, look what I did. It'll all be to the praise and honour of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Amazing grace. So Christian friends, we haven't quite finished. What a prospect. That's the ultimate future. London, where there are Joyce Vincents. Nobody knew for three years. There are no Joyce Vincents in that sense. In this city, everyone is loved, everyone is valued, everyone is cared for. Here is a perfect community of joy and peace and love, a sinless community, community that pulsates with the vibrance and beauty and wonder of the nations, such diversity and yet such unity, such harmony. And best of all, God Himself with us, best of all, to be married to Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that next time. But here we are living in London. What should characterize this church? (laughs) Well, we can't get away from the light of London. We are. It's going to affect us in some way. But what should characterize this church is that we're citizens of the New Jerusalem, that we're the bride of Jesus Christ. And more of that next time. But I want to close with this. Do you remember how they built Solomon's temple? This is what we're told. Solomon's temple. When the house was built, that's talking about the temple, the dwelling place of God. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. 
So everything, okay, it's a temple being made of stone, everything was prepared at the quarry. So when the stones were brought to Jerusalem, everything fitted together perfectly. There was no sound of hammering and chisels and axes. Everything had been prepared beforehand and all beautifully fitted together. Do you see why that's in Scripture, why it's written there? It's not just so they think, oh, okay, that's how they did, that's how they did Solomon's temple. Because here we're thinking about the ultimate temple, the ultimate city. It's therefore saying that this world, if you like, is the quarry. And we're the living stones. And what is God doing in this world, in this life, in this quarry? He is cutting the stones, dressing the stones, preparing the stones, polishing the stones, preparing them for that ultimate future, for the ultimate building, so that when we get to glory, everything will beautifully fit together. It won't be, oh, there's still a bit of work to be done on that believer over there. Everything will be beautifully slotted, fitted together. So think of what's going on in the quarry. It's the sound of chisels and axes and hammers and stones being split and cut. And I don't know what you do with stones. You sand them, do you? Whatever you do to them. It's pretty rough treatment, isn't it? They're stones. That's why in this world, in this quarry, life is sometimes very hard and very painful and very humbling because we're being cut and prepared. That's why life is marked by trials and heartaches and tears. But we're in the hands of the master craftsman. He knows what he's doing. We can't see how it all fits together. But he's the architect. He's the builder. He knows how every stone is to be shaped. And he knows how every stone is to fit into the whole. So the things that happen aren't random. I wasn't just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The master craftsman. Working in the quarry of this world. Preparing his stones. Dressing them. Preparing them for that great day when he'll put it all together. The old Puritan said, Adversity is the diamond dust with which heaven polishes its choicest jewels. So, brothers and sisters, if our present trials, the sound of hammers and axes and chisels, is preparing us for that ultimate future, no regrets. No turning back. The master knows what he's doing. That's why Paul writes, we don't lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing. They'll soon be over. For the things that are unseen, the great city of which we will be a part, the things which are unseen are eternal.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've had to gallop through this passage. And there are so many things that are, well, we feel we've just been like swallows just skimming the water. We'd love, love to dive deeper and to, and to really think through the wonder of these things. Lord, these are the pictures. If the pictures are wonderful, what must the reality be like? Lord, it's unimaginable. And to think on that day with sinless hearts, we shall see our beloved. It'll be our wedding day, and not alone, but with all the people of God. Joy inexpressible, full of glory, wonder of wonders. We pray, therefore, Father God, that you would give us the grace to bear the knocks and the pains of the quarry. And that you would bring that work soon to completion. And that, Father, we would all be there. And that you would knit us together and make us the people that you would have us to be. And make us the people that are prepared, a bride, adorned for our beloved, for our Lord Jesus. Oh, gracious God, hasten that day. Fit us for that day. And be the lifter up of our heads and our glory in this day. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.